It's been more than a generation now, but the American embargo of Cuba isn't stopping Cubans from catching up to the 21st century. It's just making it take a long time. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The man who probably knows more about travel to Cuba than anyone else is Christopher P. Baker. He's back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves with an update on how things are starting to change in Cuba and how U.S. citizens can legally visit. What you're seeing in Havana particularly is a new middle class. You're seeing nightclubs, restaurants, etc. that are really booming, and it looks as if South Beach has now come to Havana. We'll also celebrate taking a fall hike in the woods of Germany, where you can cap it off Oktoberfest style. We always make sure to have an excuse to visit one of the bars in the evening for food, at least for a drink. And we'll get tips for exploring the back roads of Quebec. You will notice the cultural nuances of New France. Cuba, Quebec, and hiking in Germany. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Even with a government policy that's not eager to change the U.S. embargo, there are legal ways for Americans to visit Cuba. We'll get an update on how Cuba's changing without Fidel at the helm and how its tourism industry works in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also celebrate Oktoberfest with a hike in the woods of Germany later in the hour. Let's start among the fall colors of Quebec with travel writer Cray Bauer. Cray is an American with a real affinity for our neighbor to the north, and Canada is the focus of much of his writing and travel. He's here to point out where you can find a bit of European style, plus some pretty good maple syrup and blueberries among the whitewashed back roads of La Belle Provence. Cray, it's good to have you back. My pleasure, Rick. When we think about Quebec, how is it distinct culturally? We have an image of Canada, but Quebec is really culturally its own place, isn't it? It is, and and very much by design and by self-design. If you travel into the cities in Montreal or especially Quebec City, um, you'll see many more fleur-de-lis than you will see uh, the maple leaf. Yeah, I understand you won't see as many maple leaves in Quebec as you would elsewhere in Canada. No, and and, and I think the best example is on uh, Canada Day, July 1st, is actually called Moving Day in Montreal, and everybody changes their leases then. Thousands of people move on Moving Day. They take their apartments outside. It's much more, again, like Europe, much more lease and rental friendly than oh, okay. ownership uh, status quo. So a little more European in its culture and its Very business much style. so. And I think you'd find that quite familiar. And of course, it's the deeper you go into Quebec, toward Quebec City and, and northern Quebec, you'd find that as well. I understand they even have a term ROC for the rest of Canada. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, you, There are many of these terms, but very interestingly, in, in the Quebec, the borders uh, Vermont and New Hampshire is called the Eastern Townships. And these were one of the places where loyalists went uh, during the American Revolution. Now, isn't that interesting? So people who supported King George and they lost to the founding fathers, uh, George Washington and, and the colonial army and so on, they really thought, mm, let's get the heck out of here. And they went up to Canada where they could still be loyal to England. Exactly. Most famously, they went to Kingston, uh-huh. um, Ontario. But also you find all along the border, you'll find these towns, very quaint just towns. Just north of the border. Just north of, exactly. So you have a little bit of that New England flavor surviving there to this day? Quite so. And more so than the conifer forests of Vermont and New Hampshire, you find these uh, rolling hills, many glacial lakes, and, and little villages where... Um, they speak a, a sort of combination, Franglish, if you will, where mm-hmm. often they'll, they'll uh, speak and quite comfortable with uh, Americans and Anglo-English speakers. Just like a lot of Americans would, would sort of confuse Mexico with Spanish culture, I bet a lot of Americans confuse Quebec with French culture. And it's just because they speak French doesn't mean they eat a lot of frog legs, right? No, uh, exactly right. They eat a lot of poutine, which poutine. is uh, the French delicacy, which is... Um, French fries covered with gravy and cheese curd, and huh. this is and now you this has been taken in the poutine. Renaissance of comfort foods that we're okay. experiencing at the moment. Poutine now you can get with the French fries are cooked in duck fat and then foie gras on top. Oh, okay, so you want to go to a diner in Quebec? You'd ask for poutine to get something really. You local. would usually after two a.m. though, or after you've skied or cross country skied all day. It's a <laughs> lot of carb reload, if you will. So it's great for post uh, skiing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cray Bauer about Quebec, and uh, Cray is a travel writer. He's got a blog at msntravel.com, and his website is flowingstreamwriting.net. Cray, we talked about how you wouldn't see as many maple leaf flags, but when I think of Quebec, I do think of maple syrup. It's sort of a culture, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Maple syrup and uh, cheeses, uh, a very strong farming community. Farms are, are small, independent farms are well supported in this region. And you can find virtually anything made of maple, sweetened with maple, I should say, uh, in Quebec. What's a sugar shack? A sugar shack is where uh, the maple syrup is actually boiled down into, you know, creating the syrup that we find when we boil other, other uh, things that may not taste very appetizing at first, but you add a little bit of heat and magic happens. And so you'll find the sugar shacks. You can often work. The kids are interested in, in going in and helping to uh, during the maple syrup season. And you go and you tap the maple tree and the, and the sap runs out and then you are on the process of making maple syrup. Really fun, hands-on activity fun time for to kids. be there. Tap time in Quebec. Yeah. Whoopee! Now, when we think about Quebec, of course, Montreal and, and Quebec City are the, the big cities, and they've got their charm and their energy. But let's talk just about the atmosphere or, or the, the feeling of, of the countryside, small-town Quebec. What are the different regions, and, and what do they have to offer? What are the big hits for travelers in Quebec? Well, one of my favorite regions is the Saguenay region, uh, north of Montreal, a few hours. And they, they have completed La Velloute de Bluet, which is the bicycle route of blueberries, 256 kilometers or about 160 miles. Ninety percent is designated bike path, meaning you're not even on the same surface as the cars nice. that are passing. Nice. And wonderful activity. There's a five- and seven-day uh tour that you can do just by yourself, number of uh, Vilo Maisons, which are bike community centers. You'll so, go into a small town and there'll be a community center where you can get another patch for your bike or sit around and talk to other cyclists. So this is Saguenay. This is in Saguenay. And you also travel through several, uh, two national parks. We started out at Pont Talon National Park riding through the uh, birch forest. And as someone who grew up in the Northeast, uh, being among birches again hmm. was wonderful. So th this would be real tranquil farm country, sort of very pastoral, um, cheese sampling, this sort exactly. of Exactly. In fact, I stopped at a fromagerie and uh, met the, the main dairyman who told me they'd been organic for 20 years, not because of the trending, but because right. they realized it was the best agricultural practice. Very nice. And this would be sort of enthusiastically francophone? Um, I, I think certainly the, the music, the entertainment um, is that way you'll find, and of course the speech, but very friendly people. Mm -hmm. And uh, another interesting point in, in contrast, say, to Europe is that the uh, church steeples, this is a heavily Catholic area, mm -hmm. the church steeples are made of aluminum because this is an aluminum mining area. And so it was quite an adjustment for me to go in and see this big shiny steeple in this little village. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Cray Bauer. And Cray's a travel writer from the United States who focuses on Canada. He writes a blog at msntravel.com. And Cray's website is flowingstreamwriting.net if you want to read more about Canada. Craig, what are some specific places we could put on our itinerary if we're thinking about doing Quebec outside of the big cities of Quebec City and Montreal? Well, first, I would go to Quebec City but take the train along the St. Lawrence River to Le Massif, which is the uh, mountain range north of Quebec City. Um, this is a gorgeous route. You get a sense of the, uh, especially in the fall, the changing sugar maples mm. and other, uh, other maples. Now, I don't picture Quebec as having mountains. What's this massif? Are they rolling hills? It's like Appalachia or what? Slightly higher than Appalachia, but, but similar. The Laurentian Range, there are several ranges in northern Quebec that, uh, that run through. And so, and it, a few, most famously Mont Tremblant, the ski area, but there are other ski areas as well. Now, talk more about the, the region along the St. Lawrence River. That southeastern Quebec sounds is quite dramatic and quite charming. It is. There, there are several gorges as you go through. And also, of course, the St. Lawrence's importance long before the uh, Mississippi was being exploited was the artery that, that really was the reason why the British and the French and the really Americans the, the came power. to terms. That's the that's the uh, the Ruhr Valley of Canada. That's probably where the industrial might was back in the early industrial age. Absolutely, and we see it in the states, of course, with Buffalo, with Cleveland, and right. the the Saint, headwaters of the Saint Lawrence are actually in Minnesota, and therefore 
they claim the St. Lawrence, the Great Lakes are all an expansion of the St. Lawrence River. So you really get its importance. Do you feel a kind of a rust belt feeling there? Or do you feel a charming old world um, energy? Or what's it like in the old industrial towns along the St. Lawrence River? Well, mostly what you have is our agricultural towns. And so mm. you have these beautiful farms with bright red roofs and mm-hmm. red red roofed silos or bright green as we think of Anne of Green Gables and Prince Edward Island, that kind of environment. All whitewashed. I mean, really a, a stunning pastoral So of, it just uh, sounds like a very... I mean, if, if there was comfort food for travelers, it would be exploring the, the rural countryside of Quebec. Well, I think so. And then also, of course, it's very obviously very convenient to the United States, and yet right. it is a different culture. And right. you, will, you will see... Uh, you will notice the cultural nuances of New France. How can you enjoy uh, the culture a little more vividly during festival times? There are so many festivals. I mean, this, again, is something brought directly from the French. Interesting uh, festivals. We know Cirque du Soleil. I mean, the founder of Cirque du Soleil was a street performer in Trois-Rivières, Quebec, hmm. um, f- uh, going for the time dollars or loonies, and now is, is one of the wealthiest Canadians alive. And you don't just have to go to Montreal, which has two or three festivals all free a week, it seems, in the summer. But they're wonderful places. Uh, one of the favorites is uh, Festival de la Chanson, which is um, in the eastern townships, and that's just Festival of the Song. And many mm. new artists, both English and French, mm. um, are And there discovered. must be a real pride with the culture because they, I'm sure they just love their, their French language and, and, and the culture that comes with that. It is, and it's beautiful to see, for example, a, a, a French band interpreting an Argentinian uh, song style. It's just a, different enough to be quite curious, I think, for those of us who uh, spend our time south of the border. Okay, Cray, I'm going to Quebec, and I'm going for a maple syrup tapping party. And while you're tapping maple syrup, make sure you head to the tap and get some of the local blonde beer. This is what they're known for. Okay. And uh, and then don't forget to uh, order friend, some poutine. Poutine, my French fries, drizzled in gravy. Drowned covered, in gravy. Drowned in gravy, covered with cheese curd. Sounds like Quebec is a party waiting to happen. Thanks Absolument. a lot. Absolument. Merci bien. Oui. La vie, c'est comme les montagnes russes, avec ses hauts et ses bas. Un sourire, un soupir, trois fois passera. Up next, the top travel writer on all things Cuban joins us for an update on how things are changing there and how Americans can see it for themselves. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, Human Rights, and Democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. We've been holding off on inviting Christopher P. Baker back on Travel with Rick Steves for a few years now. We thought we'd wait until American policy prohibiting travel to Cuba looked like it might be changing. But it's looking like Cuban society is changing faster than the U.S. policy on its embargo. Chris Baker is probably the foremost expert on travel in Cuba. He's traveled there more than 70 times in the last three decades, and his works about the island include the Moon Guidebook to Cuba 
and his coffee table book about a motorcycle trip across the island called Mimoto Fidel. Chris's latest project is collaborating on a documentary with actor David Soule about the restoration of Ernest Hemingway's 1955 Chrysler New Yorker, which was recently rediscovered in Cuba. Chris, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Rick, it's a delight to be back with you. What is it about Cuba that gets into people's blood? (laughs) It's just a fascinating place. It's a time warp. It seems to be trapped in the 50s, and of course it's a, a communist nation in the Caribbean. And it's been off-limits to Americans, essentially, for five decades. Uh, Once you get there, you you experience this incredibly profound culture, music and dance everywhere you go, but the setting, the Hollywood setting, is just incredible, absolutely marvelous. There's something fertile about it. I mean, uh, the storms, the, the physical storms, and also the political storms. There's this churningness about Cuba. Well, absolutely. You know, it's only 90 miles from Key West to Havana, and yet um, the Florida Straits, in a sense, are the widest, deepest mode in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's this in- incredible antagonism that's been um, entrenched now for five decades between Washington and Havana, and of course between Havana and uh, Miami. Uh, and uh, I don't see any change to that anytime soon, even though Raul Castro is making overtures to the USA. Right. Of course, Cuba has a slave heritage. How does that impact Cuba today, and how is the slave heritage treated or taken advantage of by the communist government? Well, obviously, on the eve of the revolution, there was incredible racism in Cuba, and the revolution has uh, gone a long way to eradicating that, at least on an institutionalized level. It's raised the black underclass up. Uh, There's tremendous poverty in Cuba, as there was before the revolution, but the black underclass has really been the beneficiary, and in that sense you find perhaps a greater loyalty to the revolution amongst the blacks themselves. And, of course, they have this profound musical heritage that is uh, it's a quintessential element of what travelers to Cuba love about being there. I think it's easy to be romantic about Cuba and all these beautiful things to talk about, the cars, the music, the, the nice rum drinks. What's the dark side? Well, of course, it's a communist nation that is very restrictive in terms of the human rights as we speak of them. Uh, Freedom of speech doesn't really exist there at all. Uh, You have an economy that's pretty much been trashed both by the uh, U.S. embargo, but principally by the fact that the state took over uh, the entire economy and uh, has not done a good job of running it ever since. And it pays uh, workers in Cuba a, a pittance. And so you have no real capital base uh, Hmm. amongst the populace in Cuba. You had a society that was sort of an elite economy back in the days of Batista. Then you had a society that was subsidized by Russia, so it could be a showcase in the Western Hemisphere. And then Russia dropped out when the the Soviet Union fell apart, and the American embargo has battered its economy. And then you got the inherent problems of having an economy that ignores the laws of supply and demand. It's pretty tough for Cuba, no matter how smart and hardworking they are, to become an affluent nation. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, we can't understate the importance of the dependency upon the Soviet Union for three decades until the Soviet bloc collapsed um, in 1991. But it's very important also to recognize, too, that Raul Castro, who came to power after 2006 when Fidel was taken seriously ill, is a different so he's cut from a different cloth than his brother, and he has been initiating what I would call significant reforms that are trying mm-hmm. to uh, stimulate private enterprise in Cuba. And the past year alone, I've seen dramatic change. The Obama administration has lifted uh, restrictions on the amount of money that can be sent by Cuban Americans to their families, and also it now permits any U.S. citizen to send money to Cuba in support of private enterprise. And what you're seeing in Havana particularly is uh, a new middle class. You're seeing nightclubs, restaurants, etc., that are really booming, and it looks in parts uh, as if South Beach has now come to Havana. Wow. Uh, I'll be back in Cuba in a couple of days and be touring the entire island, and I'm very enthused to hopefully find that this kind of um, new pattern of the evolution of private enterprise for the first uh, time in six decades is now spreading beyond Havana. We'll see. Wow, this is pretty radical. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Baker. Christopher is the author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba. So, Christopher, people love Cuba, but of course, Americans have to deal with the American embargo that limits who can go there and how and why and everything. 
course, uh, Europeans and Canadians find uh, Cuba as the number one Caribbean destination for them when they're dreaming about a Caribbean vacation. Americans have to be more careful. In previous times, you could go to the Yucatan or Canada and just hop on a plane and go there. But these days, you're going to end up with a stamp on your passport and conceivably be in big trouble with our government. What's the latest on Americans who just want to go to Cuba and get to know the culture and get to know the people and have a good time? How can we do it? Sure. Well, it's still theoretically possible to do it that way. Uh, Canada, um, Cancun, um, Central America was a popular route for me that I took many times. Uh, Back in uh, a few years ago, you could actually pull up the airline websites and make a booking with Copper or Grupo Taca, for example. These days, you'll find that they do not display their Cuba routes on their websites. So it's become a little more difficult, not least because you can't use your credit cards. The good news, in a sense, is that the Obama administration does not seem to be pleasing this with the same thoroughness that the Bush administration did. And so it's more likely that uh, anybody who chooses to take that route could get away with it. The other side of the coin, however, is that Cuba, which never used to stamp your passport, seems these days to be stamping almost everybody's passport, and it's always on page 16, so Hmm. the U.S. authorities know that. So, Christopher, what's the worst scenario? I decide to go to Cuba like hippies did 20 years ago. They stamp my passport. Two years later, I'm trying to go somewhere. They see I've been in Cuba. Is there a big fine? Well, potentially on paper, there is a big fine at $60,000. However, nobody has been fined. In fact, there are only two people have ever been fined through the judicial system. Um, A lot of people have received notifications of intent to fine, which is a totally different animal. Mm. Uh, But there's no judicial process. But I'm a law-abiding American citizen, and I want to go legally from the United States, and I understand Obama has opened up a way, this kind of people-to-people program. Explain that. Well, this is the way to go, because everybody can do so legally. Now, everybody has this ability to to pick and choose uh, according to their desire, be it a weekend program or something lengthier and more in-depth like National Geographic Office. Uh, The people-to-people programs... We're doing incredible meetings. For example, I'll give you some examples from the the National Geographic program. We go to visit my friend Julio Munoz in the beautiful colonial city of Trinidad. We call him the horse whisperer. You're in his 18th century home. You're learning about the multiple businesses he has. And then he brings in a horse inside the home, inside the, the salon of this beautiful house. And he describes how he is trying to teach Cuban peasants who kind of brutalize their animals how to have a more loving, affectionate uh, interaction uh, with their animals, that they don't need to give them pain to have their animals respond, etc. It's a fascinating experience. That's a classic example of what a person-to-person or people-to-people trip would include. So as an American tourist, I need to book a tour, and legally I need to be with a tour in Cuba for the purpose of meeting people and having this cultural exchange. Is that the idea? That's exactly right. It's all about cultural exchange. Talk to me about the flight from Miami to Cuba. It's there's just some unique things about actually flying from Florida to Cuba. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's no scheduled flights as such. There are scheduled charter flights and only licensed individuals can board those flights to Cuba. It's a 40 minute flight. If you get a license, you mentioned them before, journalists, um, religious folks, and, of course, the people-to-people tour groups. You get on a flight, leave Miami, and 40 minutes later, you touch down in Havana. Of course, when we go to Cuba, you're going to check out Havana. But you got to get out of the big city and into the countryside. Talk about the wonder of a small-town experience for the American visitor to Cuba. Absolutely, absolutely. This is where the real Cuba is. And there are no restrictions on uh, travel around Cuba by the Cuban government. You can rent a car and do whatever you want. If you're a U.S. traveler, obviously you're going to be there on a people-to-people program. And you would go out to a place like Trinidad. I already mentioned this beautiful colonial city, um, the city of Sinfuegos, for example, created by French uh, immigrants in the 19th century, has its own unique flavor. But out there in the countryside, you're still going to see ox-drawn plows. Mm. It's a cowboy culture. Um, Half the vehicles in the country are probably drawn by oxen, or horse. It's a time warp. Uh, Havana's its own time warp, a 50s time warp. You go to the tobacco country of Vinales, go to see the farmers there growing tobacco that goes in to make the the finest cigars in the world. Then you are being taken back Mm. two entire centuries. Amazing that it still exists. And 
my worry when I see the news is that the, the beautiful little countryside villages and hamlets of Cuba would just be ravaged by hurricanes that keep sweeping through. What does it feel like? What are the remnants uh, or, what, or the souvenirs left by these hurricanes? Well, it's rather tragic that Hurricane Sandy, which struck New York and New Jersey last year, actually touched down in Santiago de Cuba. That's the oldest city in Cuba and mm. the original capital. And it devastated that city. I was there just four months ago, and it it made me weep to see entire top floors mm. of the houses, buildings around the central plaza gone. Mm. But in the countryside, do you, do you have a sense that life just goes on and, and they've always had hurricanes, or does it feel like it's a constant war zone? Well, it is a constant, uh, particularly in the tobacco country of Vinales mm. in the west of Cuba, because uh, half of the hurricanes that hit the island come up mm. from the Gulf of Mexico over this, this area. Cuba has a world-class evacuation policy, and they're very well trained mm -hmm. in handling hurricanes. But, of course, it's devastating, and devastating to the local economy, to the lives of the locals. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Cuba with Christopher Baker, the author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's calling in from Long Beach in California. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Um, how soon do you think we're going to be able to have affordable tours so that we don't have to do the people-to-people -people and we don't have to fly out of Miami? I'm in Los Angeles. I don't need to fly to Miami to get to Cuba. Well, hi, Cheryl. Um, I don't I don't envisage any time soon that we're going to see uh, the travel restrictions lifted because uh, the president no longer has the ability to do so. It requires congressional approval for that, and currently the balance of power on the Cuba question still resides with hardline Cuban-Americans. Okay. Thank that's, you. That's kind of sad news. Yeah, it is. Oh, man. Well, um, keep up to date on these uh, creative options that tour guides can offer because there's a lot of independent travel that you can do within the context of one of these people-to-people -people tours, isn't there, Christopher? Right, and I have looked at them, and they seem quite a lot more expensive than if I were able to just hit the country and read yeah. the book and go on my own. Well, then you can talk to some people who have gone through Canada and, and, uh, and, and consider that route. I'm not quite that brave. <laughs> sure. Why Why do you want to go to Cuba? There's all sorts of other islands in the Caribbean. Well, it really relates to when I was about eight years old. My family went down to Miami on a three-week vacation, and my dad said if he'd realized then how cheap it was to go to Cuba, we would have gone. And so now as an adult, an older adult, it's like, well, that would have been fun because that's something that dad wanted to do. Plus, I have a lot of friends who are Cuban. Well, Christopher, the, the Europeans mm -hmm. and the Canadians seem to enjoy it on their own, don't they? Oh, everybody who goes to Cuba has a, a fantastic time. Uh, so many people go to Cuba. These are world travelers. They go to Cuba and they go, wow, that was one of the best trips I've ever done. I want to go back. I have never heard of anybody who's gone to Cuba that didn't come back with a very positive uh, <laughs> uh, experience. Cheryl, thanks for your call, and I hope you can get to Cuba someday. Thank you. Christopher P. Baker is the author of The Moon Guidebook to Cuba, and he specializes in Caribbean and Latin American travel writing and photography. He leads tours for National Geographic Expeditions, Lindblad Expeditions, and Moto Discovery. And Chris won the Lowell Thomas Award from his travel writing peers as the best travel journalist of the year. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, when we think about Havana, talk about just the classic Havana. Is it still there? I mean, the old car scene, it's, it seems like someday that's got to fade away. Do you still get that sort of Hollywood image of, of Havana? You know, it's the first thing that hits you uh, when you arrive at the airport. You know, all the cars outside the airport are these uh, 50s classics. And when I first went to Cuba in 93, I, I am, imagined that 20 years on, they would no longer be there, but mm -hmm. they are. They're still running around. Uh, many of them are running around with diesel and tractor engines, etc. and may not be uh, what you think they are. They're, they're all Frankenstein's monsters. There are, uh, very few of them are originals, but some of them uh, are in wonderful condition. And, of course, uh, the number of visitors, it's 2.7 million foreign visitors last year, by the way. Wow. Um, they're supporting people by utilizing cars for their private tours of the city, etc. And so that's another reason why hmm. these old cars are kept going. 
I did, a, by the way, Rick, um, I did a coffee table book called Cuba Classics, a celebration of vintage oh. American automobiles. And uh, Oh, that's great. Cuba Classics. Took a, a broad study of the whole scene there. And right now I'm uh, making a cinematic documentary with David Soule, uh, actor-director. Remember him? Old Hutch of Starskin Hutch. And um, we're doing a documentary about the restoration of Hemingway's 1955 Chrysler. New Yorker, which disappeared and was recently rediscovered. It's in, was in almost derelict condition, but uh, we're making the restoration happen and documenting it. Oh, that's great. You're documenting that, and, and we can follow the uh, progress of that documentary at ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, when you're traveling in Havana, there's bicycle taxis. Is that something that uh, is, is fun to take advantage of? <laughs> These business taxis, yeah, they appeared on the scene after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, when transport ground to a halt. They were essentially rickshaws, if you will, um, three-wheel bicycle taxis. And oh, yeah. um, some of them are quite extreme in their design, but they're a lot of fun. And uh, <laughs> There's a lot of improvisation, the, uh, isn't there? Is this? Uh, oh, everything in Cuba is improvised, yeah, absolutely. What's the term, hecho in Cuba? Hecho in Cuba, made in Cuba. Made in Cuba. Here's another one for you. El Cubano Inventor, the Cuban Invents. Cuban invents. That's, I guess, the embargo uh, stimulates local um, field expediency. Uh, just on the streets in Havana, is there freedom of expression? Can you talk to people comfortably? You, well, certainly you can talk to anybody you want. Freedom of expression, absolutely not. Uh, no mm. Cuban in his right mind would in public say mm. anything uh, derogatory mm. about the government. And how does it feel late at night on the streets in Havana? Quite safe. Uh, there are certain areas that I'd be very cautious about going around, but um, for the most part, it is a very, very safe city, and it's got this incredible ambiance, low wattage lighting, and mm. an amazing night scene, of course, uh, with the salsa and the jazz clubs and, uh, oh, yeah. and the old cars running around. And of course, there have been very, very few buildings have gone up since the revolution. Yeah. So it's another another sense of this Hollywood stage set. So there's more of that time warp than just old cars. Everything, because of the economy and the embargo and, and lots of complicated reasons, it's just an otherworldly experience. So Christopher, let's just say I've had a beautiful experience in Cuba. I've done the countryside, I've done Havana, I've been on my bicycle taxi, and I want to just finish off at the Tropicana. What's the Tropicana like today? Oh, this is a no-brainer to end a trip. Uh, the Tropicana was, uh, is the biggest cabaret, Las Vegas-style cabaret in Cuba, and it was opened on New Year's Eve 1939 and is still going strong. Open air, 200 performers, sexy showgirls, the finest salsa bands, etc., um, it's very much of a tourist entity these days and not cheap, but my gosh, everybody loves it. It sounds great. Christopher Baker, author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba, thank you for providing all this information to those of us who want to go to Cuba and to those of us who can find a way to get there. Best wishes. Thank you, Rick. Up next, Germany's our destination for a little fresh air and exercise. A tour guide from the Rhineland offers tips for German-style hiking on the country's extensive network of trails. And we'll find out how you might even earn a medal for all your efforts. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. You've probably seen them. Firm-jawed and resolute, they're the kind of hikers who take their efforts on the trail very seriously. If you happen to be in Europe, there's a good chance that those kind of hikers are German. It's practically a national sport in Germany to take a vigorous hike or an extended backpacking trek on their nation's amazing network of trails. Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us enjoy the fresh air of Germany's nature trails is tour guide Thomas Gundlach. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Rick. And, uh, well, hiking uh, as well as bicycling um, has been a booming business over the last couple of years, not only because it was powered and also pushed forward by the health industry, uh, by the wellness industry, also, the government, if you have a look on uh, the um, health cost today, if people get sick... This is just German efficiency, then. You, you know, <laughs> we'll have less, less health care if you all get out walking. Of course. Yeah, and you can combine it, and that is a big thing in the Rhine Valley, like in some others in Germany. You can combine it with tourism, and therefore you provide jobs. Yeah, you are setting up a hiking trail on both sides of the river, like uh, that happened in the Rhine Valley, and you will see that people, uh, these hikers, are no more belonging to a generation uh, that they come on uh, with a car and go home in the evening. No, some of them are really hiking a couple of days, spend a weekend, stay overnight, spend money in the bars, 
stay overnight and okay. pay the hotel and so on. So not only is it efficient from a in yeah. healthcare, but it's also good for the economy. Okay, yeah. let's get away from all of that <laughs> German efficiency stuff and just talk about there's this energy for hiking, even, I think, before the economics of it all. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we think of, I love to go a-wandering. There's this whole German, like, embrace nature yeah. and, and altogether hike. Tell us, have you ever been on a folks march? Yes, I have, actually. What is, this is a uniquely German thing. What is a folks march? Yeah, usually a local um, society, sports club, is organizing these. Uh, they are a member of the um, hiking association, a federal one, and um, they are having a look for a trial on which people can march. There are regular stops where you get a stamp on a paper. So, so it's an organized hike. It is an organized hike. Uh, you get a medal in the end, usually, um, nothing else, yeah. So no big prize or whatsoever. No, but you do it to have the personal accomplishment, yeah, huh? Exactly, and you have a record. And if you publish this record or allow them to publish it, uh, then you can, uh, of course, uh, over the year take part in more and more Volksmärsche or Volksläufe, and uh, therefore uh, your own uh, credit is going up there. And you see okay. how your ranking is uh, depending on. Uh, so it's competition. In terms, yeah. So there's a little German some competition people, here too. Some people take it as a competition. This others just for fun. Yeah, okay. it's up to them. Yeah. So it's the, there's hiking clubs that sponsor these. Yeah, and they exactly. will just announce we're gonna in the in the Schwarzwald, the Black Forest yeah. from uh, Freiburg. We're gonna have a folks march, and we're is it several days or just one long? No, day? No, it's usually a one day occasion, and mm-hmm. uh, usually they offer a route around about twenty thirty kilometers, mm-hmm. um, eighteen or twenty, 20 miles, miles, yeah, even like more. But also usually a short version because oh, okay. they are well aware that you have people who just want to enjoy the yeah. day in the huge community. So there's a sort of a communal dimension to the hiking. It is. Because in the United States, normally, the thought of hiking with 30 people, that sort of turns me off. I want to <laughs> hike alone. But in Germany, you like to have a big gang to go hiking with. In, in terms of the Volksmarsch, yes, of course. But the individualism of the people hiking in the Rhine Valley uh, over the weekend or day to day, uh, these are actually people who would never take part or right. rarely take part in a Volksmarsch. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with my friend and fellow tour guide, Thomas Guntlach. We're talking about hiking in his homeland in Germany. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn's given us a call from Duluth in Minnesota. Lynn, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Thomas. Hi. My husband and I lived in Germany in the 80s for a little over three years, and folks marching was one of the favorite things that we liked to do on the weekends. And just last September, we spent a week in Heidelberg and decided to see if we could still do a Volksmarch. And we got on the web and found one in a little town called Idlingen, just a little bit outside of Heidelberg. And we hopped on the train and followed some of the older gentlemen with um, their hiking canes and found <laughs> where the Volksmarch started and headed out into the countryside for a 10K walk through the forests and the vineyards and the uh, oh, little villages. That's delightful, Lynn. And it sounds like any tourist can just go online and find out where one is and sign up. Is it that easy? That's easy, and you don't even have to sign up ahead of time. You just show up at it's usually a community center or a school. Actually... And since we spoke mostly English, <laughs> they just... Um, signed us up with the um, Heidelberg um, International Wandering Club. Oh, good. And um, we got our little uh, stamp card and headed out, and there were a couple checkpoints where you get your card stamped, and there's beverages yeah. and dog watering stations and some food. and Dog watering uh, stations, so you take your dog too? Sure. <laughs> yep. Now, Thomas, yep. is, would you say this is true, Thomas, that anybody who's sponsoring a folks march, they just want more people to join in, so you can just show up and, and, and join the fun? Yes, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I must actually say, um, during my army time, I was stationed for a while at Heidelberg. Uh-huh. It was especially popular uh, to have these international walks oh, yeah. um, because there were so many U.S. soldiers stationed in and around Heidelberg, and it was also a form of getting to know each other. Yeah, oh, it was great. really, yeah, right. it was really good idea. Now, Lynn, did it cost you anything to join? Um, no, to do the Volksmarch, I think it was like two euro or something okay. like that, just very minimal. And it's really more than just exercise. You got a chance to meet locals and have some fun, mm-hmm. look at the local cuisine and, and have a few mm-hmm. drinks. Uh, what was the cultural experience like? Well, you get to see um, and meet people of all ages. There's folks with young children walking along, um, older couples, people with they're, um, like I said, they're dogs, just get you know, to meet all kinds of people. It sounds like a great way to connect with Germany that I've really, I can't, I, I don't remember 
meeting an American who's done it, and, and it happens all the time. I suppose it's mostly summertime. Well, no, they're all year long. All year long, great. The best part is at the end where there's sometimes there's music, but there's always food and more beverages, and people get together for lunch. So it's just a 10-kilometer walk, six miles, but there's a party waiting <laughs> for you. Some party to of us, yeah. So, well, Thomas, tell us about the best kind of party for at the end of a Volksmarch. Well, um, if it is really uh, organized by a club, etc., then uh, they do this, of course. Sometimes, for little money, sell the odd sausage and drinks, of course, to make some money for the club. And um, the partying all around is a typical German thing. Uh, so have some we, local beer. Yeah, we always like this at the end of a hard day, and walking, hiking is a hard day, too. And so uh, good food and good drink belong to it in the end. <laughs> and can you have a beer outside in Germany? Outside, no problem. I'm yeah, just kidding. Yeah, of course you can. In the United yeah. States, you couldn't do that because yeah, you know, know. we, have, we have a problem yeah. with this. But well. in Germany, after a nice hike, you can have <laughs> yeah. a beer yeah. right under the sky. <laughs> right. Beautiful. Lynn, thanks for your call. Thank you. Debbie's on the phone in Tucson, Arizona. Debbie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Debbie. Um, I'm so excited to be on with you. I might be your biggest fan in the world. But, oh, nice. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Thomas, I wanted to ask you, last um, year my husband and I hiked TMB, the Tour of Mont Blanc in the Alps, and we really liked how it um, sort of combined the spectacular scenery and being out in nature during the day with um, being able to stay in charming villages, have great dinners, have a glass of wine with dinner, um, and kind of experience the culture, the local culture. And I was wondering if you had any recommendations for a circuit or multi-day hike in Germany that maybe would combine some of these elements, too. And first of all, Debbie, we should remind our, our listeners that the tour of Mont Blanc you're talking about is around Mont Blanc, which is uh, between Italy and uh, France, right? And that's, uh, yeah. what is that, like a 100-mile hike all around the whole Mont Blanc range? with uh, I don't know the exact mileage. You know, you can do it in five to seven days. Five to seven days. Type of thing. A, yeah, and you can actually hike down into the villages, which was yeah. what we did most of the time, and, you know. That's the biggest mountain in Europe, and, and Germany has some decent mountains, but nothing quite like that. But maybe there's some great uh, similar extensive hikes in the mountains. Thomas, what is a good idea? Uh, if you're not bound to the mountains, in the mountains, of course, we have this too. But all across Germany, we see nowadays so-called premium hiking trails coming up. Premium simply means... Premium. Premium okay. means that uh, you have to meet a certain standard a standard uh, in length of the tour, of the entire trail, as well as um, yeah, the difficulties on the way. And uh, while you were mentioning the Alps, many people from Bavaria, when they come in our area, the Rhine Valley, they are laughing and saying, um, can't be that exhausting here. We are natives, more or less. We are really Bavarians, and we hike the hills and mountains up and down, and that is exhausting. But then if you take them on a hike in the Rhine Valley, uh, hikes are usually 20 miles up to 25 miles, let's say, a day there, to the next village, passing several others on the way, as well as many castles and other cultural and historical highlights. It's a lot of ups and downs. And I must admit, I was really uh, exhausted one day uh, at the very beginning uh, when I did the hikes with a friend of mine we went. In the end, we actually just saw uh, um, that we made a big mistake. It looked very easy on the map with all the lines indicating uh, how steep it is and so on and how close. And we forgot that the lines were so narrow to each other that there were many, many valleys in between oh. which you simply haven't seen on the map and, uh, and turned out to be a long hike. So the, the Rhine Gorge is, is yeah. quite dramatic. It is dramatic with a dramatic scenery. Okay, now yeah. Thomas, you're from the Rhine Valley. Yeah. Are, is there a little bit of local pride here or is there, are there great hikes in Bavaria, do you think, also? There are great hikes in Bavaria. In the well. mountains? In the mountains. Zugspitze. Also. Zugspitze uh, yeah. Near Berchtesgaden, uh, oh, yeah. all around the lakes in southern Bavaria. Oh. Uh, okay. Debbie, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. All over Europe, Germans are known for their walking sticks, yeah. and they tell me it's good for an all complete body exercise. What's the science behind the walking stick? Uh, actually, that's what they told me too, but I don't use them anymore. No? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it's uh, from the wellness industry and uh, the health industry uh, that they try to teach you uh, how to walk properly uh, using your arms. So in you a get way. upper body exercise. Exactly, that the whole body is benefiting from it. But most of the hikers actually don't use the sticks. No, but uh, uh, the traditional the, old guys with the felt hat will have a, will a walking the, stick, yeah. a single one. You will still see that. The other ones are like yeah. ski poles, you know. Yeah, exactly. But these old traditional, wa a single yeah. walking stick, and what I love about that is 
the Stocknagel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell us about yeah. the Stocknagel. Yeah. Uh, there's badges on them, uh, the stock nickels, and uh, just showing also with pride where they have been walking before. Yeah. So when yeah. you, if you do a hike, you will stop by the village when you're finished and buy a little metal medallion exactly. with tiny nails yeah, and hammered into your yeah, walking stick. Exactly. That's still there. This uh, tradition, more or less, you can say. I hope you can keep it up. You I think that's a beautiful up. thing. And yeah. when I was first traveling in Germany, I got one of those felt hats. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then you get the little pins also. It's not so exactly. much anymore, is it? Or do they still do that? Um, you can do that. Um, the elderly folks do that especially. And uh, um, Now, when you're hiking, do you sing? No, actually, we don't sing. Because uh, that's the tradition but, in, the, in um, the movie image of the Germans yeah, singing uh, in the mountains. This is changing around. Uh, our generation is, uh, how to say... Uh, less singing. We are rather uh, running around, some of us, uh, yeah, with an iPod. With an iPod. To English music. <laughs> very honest, very honest. Yeah. In the United States, uh, a lot of us learn to hike when we're in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. Is that the same in Germany? Um, we have Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but it's by far not as popular as in the United States. Now, I have a sense that with your Nazi heritage, mm-hmm. you might be less inclined to join what might be thought of as paramilitary groups. Yeah, we have, we've got a problem with uniforms. Yeah, tell <laughs> yeah. us more about that. As you said, it comes from our history. and uh, Because so, in the Nazi times, yeah. everybody was in the Boy Scout group. Yeah, had to be. Had to it be required. Uh, and yeah. DDR in Eastern Europe, all the kids yeah. were in the Young Pioneers yeah, or whatever. Yeah, Young Pioneers. We totally abandoned this, and therefore uh, there was a huge drop in uh, Boy Scout Boy Scout uh, kind groups of clubs, where you wear a uniform. <laughs> Ex- <laughs> yeah. Have, have to be selling uniforms yeah, in yeah, Germany exactly. these days. Exactly. And the government more or less left it up to the uh, sport clubs to okay. cover this. And so... If you're talking about hiking, uh, very often the sport club has a hiking department today. And um, in general, not a Boy Scout-like thing. No. A uniform. And if you want people to join your clubs, do not require a uniform. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> in Germany. Not at all. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning how to keep the membership up in your hiking yeah. club here on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We're talking with Thomas Guntlach, who joins us from the romantic Rhine Valley. And Stephanie's on the phone from College Park in Maryland. Hi, Rick. Hi, Thomas. It's great to talk with you. Hi. (laughs) Thank you. Hi. So my husband and I, we go to Rotenburg every year. And um, Rotenburg is a beautiful medieval walled city, but we don't stay in Rotenburg. Um, The tour buses have discovered it, and and we stay in a village um, outside in the countryside. And it's just so peaceful and beautiful. And Hmm. our very favorite thing to do is to borrow uh, or rent some bicycles and just go out into the countryside. And they have the most beautiful, dedicated bicycle paths. Um, some are next to a road, but some are really off the, off the road and just straight through farmland and woodland. And you come to little villages and maybe stop at a village inn for a glass of wine or <laughs> some lunch. <laughs> and, um, you know, for us, it is heaven. We dream of this all year long. <laughs> so now, first of all, the, the bike paths are, are well marked? The countryside is just crisscrossed with many bike paths, and they intersect. Sometimes you come to an intersection, and we say, oh, here's a, <laughs> here's a traffic intersection in Germany. You know, it's three <laughs> different bike paths come together. <laughs> um, you can get maps with bike paths uh, that, that show you where they are, and they're color-coded yeah. so you know which ones are by a road or, or not by a road. Um, you know, Stephanie, it's amazing to think that Germany is the size of Montana <laughs> with sev- 70 or 70 million. How many people in Germany? 80. 80, 80 million, million people about, yeah. packed into this, a country the size of Montana with one third the industrial capacity of the United States to boot. And you can still get out on a bicycle and come to the, in the middle of the, nowhere to an intersection of three <laughs> other bike paths. This, Germany <laughs> manages its land in a beautiful way because you have that population density, but you can also very easily get out and be in touch with nature. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So ne- That's one of the things that we most admire is they seem to have less of the urban-suburban sprawl that we have in America where you might have to go through miles of, in America, strip development before mm-hmm. you can actually get into the countryside. And here you just go out the city walls and immediately you are in the countryside. Hey, Stephanie, you mentioned you don't go to Rotenburg so much because it's so touristy and overrun with tour bus groups. So you have a beautiful, private, secret little village. Could you tell me the name so I could help to ruin it? 
Uh, no, I think I'd rather not do that. <laughs> I think everybody should go, and maybe your first trip, you want to explore different areas, and and you look for one that just really speaks to you. This <laughs> this place feels like this is what I love. And then the next year, you go back, and you just spend two weeks in that one place. <laughs> and, um, you know, no no village could handle everybody that Rick Steves knows, but but <laughs> there are so many of these beautiful yes. villages. Good for you. Stephanie, you're a... Uh... Well, I wish you'd tell me the name of that town, but you're still a great traveler. <laughs> Thank you, and I, I don't blame you for keeping that a secret. And uh, thanks for your tips on getting away from the tourists and getting to really touch the natural soul of Germany there. Happy travel, Stephanie. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Thomas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been speaking with Thomas Guntlach, and we're talking about the wonders of enjoying Germany with our feet. How do you say on foot? Zu Fuß. Zu Fuß. Zu Fuß. Zu Fuß. Deutschland zu Fuß. So, Thomas, hiking is clearly a big part of German culture. Where would you or your German friends go where you just feel so thankful to be German and living in such a beautiful part of Europe? Well, um, forests belong to Germany, and uh, that's what we are famous for, and therefore the best time to go on a hike is actually autumn, fall. We have Indian summers, uh, like you're used to at the East Coast, and uh, it's nothing better than combining this with a visit in the vineyards. The harvest is going on. Have some traditional food, some dish, uh, onion cake, federweiser at the end, uh, uh, the young wine of the season. So you got your onion cake, your fresh wine, federweiser, your, yeah. your colored uh, leaves in the fall. Exactly. And name a place in Germany where that would be the, the easiest to find and enjoy. Is it in the Schwarzwald or what? Not in the Schwarzwald. Here you have the forest, of course, yeah. a lot of needle trees, <laughs> however. Right. Yeah. But um, go, actually go to the Rhineland area, the Rhineland. to the Moselle area. The Mosel, uh, that's beautiful. And the yeah. R area for red wine, uh, oh, if right. you're rather for red wine. Okay. Uh, these are areas, the Palatine area as well, famous and, for wine and, and also the forest. And as we talked with Lynn from Minnesota earlier, get on one of those folks' marches. Yes. Do yes. the 10K yeah. and then celebrate with all the exactly. good food and drink and music yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. And you can put a, a beautiful little pin on your walking stick. Thomas Guntlach, danke sehr for sharing the beauties of your country. You're welcome. What is the word? Zufus. Zufus. On foot. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to KUCR Riverside for studio help this week. You can listen again to each week's show and look up information about our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.